good morning again. We have got what I think is a great teaching series to start this new year. And what I want to do is we dive in. So I want to quickly tell you why we landed at this series and then why I think it's especially important um, right now. So first, here's how this series came about. Uh, like many of you, I do a lot of multitasking. I'm going to try to do less of it, but I, I've been doing a lot of it. And there was a day when, not too long ago um, when I was at the office and I had grabbed supper to go because who's got time to sit down you know, and eat? So I had that with me. I, um, I was trying to install some shelves in our utility room because at the time I was director of shelf installation at our church. Um, and so I was trying to get that done, but I, I, that wasn't enough. So what I wanted to do also was uh, work on some message prep. So I had a notepad and I was writing down ideas. And there was a podcast that someone had told me about, so I was trying to listen to that. And I'm not trying to say, hey, I mean, many of you could one-up me on this, on a number of things you do. That's not my point. My, my point is this. The, the, the podcast, the title of the message on the podcast was Simplify. <laughs> Simplify. And the irony didn't catch me at the time, but there sure was something within me that said, I want what this guy is describing. I want more of that. Um, I want more of that really, really bad. Uh, and I think there's a lot of you that, that do too. Um, how many of you can identify with some of these words? Uh, we'll put some up on the screen here. Overworked and overscheduled and overcommitted and overextended and overwhelmed. Can anyone identify with at least one of those things? All right. Probably more than, than one of them. And so he was describing a, a life that was very different than that, the life that I see every time I get one of those ads from REI. I love the store REI. And I know they got me because they're trying to do this. They're trying to say, look, this life could be yours if you buy our stuff. But I long for the life I see of these people, and they're living outside. They're outside with family and friends, and they don't look hurried. They're just able to have unhurried time outside, and there's something about that that looks so good to me. And for you, your thing might be a little different. Maybe you just would love to have an unhurried conversation over coffee where either you or they don't have to be anywhere. And you can just sit and talk. Maybe some of you, maybe, I know some of you, wish you could have a day when you weren't shuttling people places, right? A day when, when I don't have to get this person there and that person here, and then I have to arrange it so that person can get back here. I, I know there's some of you that wish that was the case. I, I, I imagine there's many of you who long for a night when you're not bringing work home, either from school or from your job. And I don't just mean physically bringing it home to do, but it's not up here. You know, it's, it's not in your mind. You can just let it go, that your life was more simple. Maybe some of you long to see a day when you, you can actually see the top of your desk. I think mine's brown. I can't tell right now if I look at it. Um, maybe some of you long for the day when you have something you're trying to put in a closet. You don't have to squish everything to one size side to make room for the thing you're trying to fit in your closet. Maybe some of you long for the day when you don't have to wait for a check to come in before a bill goes out, that you just had things simplified. I think there's a lot of us who crave more simplicity the way a drowning person craves air. And what a great way to start out this year to just say, how could we simplify? So I think this is always going to be a relevant series, especially for a lot of you who are regulars here, who I know, um, who have very complex lives, type A's, who are like, we've got to pack as much into this life as we can. But here's why I think this series is more relevant than ever, and it has to do with just watching the news the last couple weeks. In fact, when everything broke about Paris, I'm like, do we just scrap our plans and, and, and talk about that? And then I paused long enough to say, wait a minute, this is all connected. 
You know, I, I look at, at the last couple weeks with, with watching TV. We, we watch, our family watch the countdown because we were all sick pretty much, you know, so we're, nothing else. So New Year's Eve, we're watching the countdown, and you're seeing all around the world all these people like, yes, a new year, because there's a whole lot about 2014 that we'd like to leave behind. We have a fresh start. It's a fresh year. Let's celebrate it. And then, you know, watching the news the next couple days, just all of the stuff. And not just the violence that is escalating all around the world, but you've got racial tension that is at a breaking point. You've got a global economy that is, looks like a house of cards. You've got a government that is as dysfunctional in this country as it is just about anywhere else. And all that's just for starters, you know? But here's the thing, and here's why I think these things are related to each other. Throughout history, disciples of Jesus Christ have faced bigger giants than we're facing, right? Throughout history, the people of God have, have seen things come in their way that are as big or bigger than any of the giants that we face in 2015. And here's, again, how this all comes together. If we are overworked, and if we are overscheduled, and if we are overcommitted, and if we are overextended, and if we feel overwhelmed, what do we have to offer to a world that needs what we say we have? What do we have to give? So I think this series matters. John Orford puts it, like, puts it like this. He says, no one can truly impact a complex, broken outer world if they don't have a simple, healthy inner world. Can I get an amen to that? So true. How can you give what you don't have? And so that's what this is about, you know. Our world needs us to simplify as much as we need us to simplify. And again, for the record, for some of you that are going, oh, are you going to tell me to try to get less out of life? No. This is not a series about simple versus satisfying. It is not simple versus productive. It is not simple versus exciting. It's simple versus exhausted. It is simple versus distracted by a whole lot of clutter that we just don't need, and that's going to hinder our ability to enjoy and hinder our ability to be productive, hinder our ability to, to, to have joy. This is a series about becoming an Olympian in the things that matter most. Olympians aren't balanced people, are they? I'm doing a little of this, little of this, little of that. They are focused. They are focused on what matters most to them, and they order their lives around that one thing, and they go for it. That's what, that's what I long for. What, what if we could become Olympians in the things that matter most? Do you think that would change our experience you know, as people? Do you think that gives us a chance to change the world? In a different way, I think so. Bill Hybels writes this. He was the guy that was giving the podcast. I put his book in your notes there. It's a book called Simplify. I've got a copy up here. Um, great book. I think I drained three highlighters going through it. Um, he basically took the podcast and turned it into a book. He says this in his book. If we don't change how we live, our overcomplicated world will begin to feel frighteningly normal. We will become accustomed to life at a frantic pace, no longer able to discriminate between the important and the unessential. And that's the danger. When we fritter away our one and only life doing things that don't really matter, we sacrifice the things that do matter. You know, that's why I intentionally called this series Simply Living, and it's a play on words. You probably already picked up on that. You can just be simply living, and that's how I see a lot of people. And that's the, the, the gravitational pull to our culture, to just simply be living. You're doing a whole lot of stuff, but it isn't bringing you where you really want to go. Your life is full. You can't fit anything else in, but it's not rewarding in the way that it feels like it should be with the amount of investment you're putting in. What if we 
flip that, what if we were simply living, our entire lives were ordered around the few things that mattered most? Do you think that could change our experience and the culture around us? What if we entered 2016, a year from now, in a different place? What if we entered 2016 and our lives were more uncluttered? And we were able to identify, here are the most important things, and my life is centered and focused on these things, and I can identify the clutter, and I'm letting it go, just letting it go. And I'll resist the urge to bust into that Frozen song that everyone busts into, right? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Spoken like a parent back there, right? (laughs) We only got one shot at this life. And I, even as I say those words, I know some of you that are facing some rough doctor's reports. We only got one shot at this life. Let's make it count. Let's make it count. Well, as we begin this series, I want to offer this thesis, and there's a place to write this in your notes. I believe this. This is not Christianese. I, I believe this is truth. The natural outcome of following Jesus is a more focused I should have put peace-filled and rewarding life because peaceful maybe gives the impression that it's just going to be easy or there's not going to be storms. No, I'm talking peace-filled where in the midst of a storm you can have peace, right? That is the natural outcome of following Jesus, a more focused, peaceful, and rewarding life. If ever there was an Olympian in the things that mattered most, it was Jesus of Nazareth. Most scholars believe he, he impacted the world primarily in three years. Three years. Man, I want to be that productive. He ordered his life around two main things and changed the world. He ordered his life around loving God and loving others. Everything he did was ordered around those two things. But what separated Jesus from most of the rest of us is there's a lot that fits under that umbrella, right? You could go crazy trying to do everything that fits under the umbrella of loving God and loving others. Jesus knew in the moment what's the one thing. In the moment, what does loving God look like? In the moment, what does loving others look like? Jesus had this mind. He had this sense. He was able to identify what's the one thing right now that I need to lock into. Well, for the next five weeks, what we're going to do, we're going to try to examine the life and teachings of Jesus and try to learn from this. Can we, can we get closer to that place? Can we get on track and get some momentum in that direction of being able to identify what's the one thing right now that's most important? And what we're going to do is we're going to focus today on a passage that's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. There's a lot we can learn from this passage if we just look at it in isolation, but we're also going to zoom out. And that's where I got into trouble this week. I was was trying to do these very things that I'm talking about, and I'm thinking, I'm coming off of Christmas, New Year's, all that kind of stuff, snow camp with our teenagers. I'm I'm going to pitch myself a softball on my first message back. I'm just going to do, let's talk about making life more simple, everyone wants more of that. Let's do a a passage that I'm familiar with, Luke 10. Hey, it's Martha, 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 do less, softball. I've been telling people this week, sermons would be so much easier if it weren't for the Bible, (laughs) you know, because there's a whole lot more here. There's a whole lot more here than, hey, everybody slow down and spend more time with Jesus. Let's take a look at it. Let's start with just the passage as it stands, the easy, straightforward reading. Um, and if you're not familiar with Luke 10, uh, here's a background of this passage. Uh, at times, Jesus drew crowds that numbered in the thousands. At times, he drew these huge crowds, but he also had these smaller circles of people. 
one of the smaller circles of people lived in a town called Bethany. They were family. It was uh, two sisters and a brother. The sisters' names were Mary, Mary, Martha, and the brother's name was Lazarus. And if you put all of the accounts of Jesus' life together, there were multiple times where Jesus went and stayed with them. We're going to look at how Luke describes one of the visits. Here it is, Luke 10, uh, starting with verse 38. If you don't have a Bible, too, we'd love to give you one free today. Um, we have them at those tables by those mailboxes. They're there for you. Please take one. It's a gift that we'd love to give you. All right, here we go. Now, as they, Jesus and, and this group, were on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. All right, let's look again at the surface of this a little bit. Um, this is an incident that I think most people in the room can relate to. Jesus drops by, he's got 12 of his disciples, and what G uh, Martha does here is, she just does what any good Jewish girl would do. She serves. This, hospitality, Middle Eastern hospitality was legendary. It's what you did, it's what you're expected to do. And there were people that rebuked for not offering it. It was in a big, big, big deal. So Martha, she extends gracious hospitality to her Guess she's doing what she's supposed to be doing, but she's like, what's my sister doing? My sister's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha doesn't even pull Mary aside privately and say, hey, psst. at least not that we know of. It's not recorded in the, test, uh, the text. She just goes right to Jesus, right to Jesus, and runs, you know, Mary all together, and she says to Jesus, don't you care? <laughs> Let that one sink in for a minute, right? the Lord of the universe, the one who left heaven's splendor, put on human flesh, and he stepped into our world in an age before indoor plumbing. He is the good teacher. He's been on the road for three years. He's been instructing and healing and serving others until he literally was so exhausted he could sleep in a little boat during a storm. He's the good shepherd. He was, he was about to lay down his life for Martha, and she says, don't you? Boy, we could go down that trail, couldn't we? Don't you care? She didn't even ask Jesus his agenda. She's so consumed with her own agenda, she thinks her sister should be on board, and she thinks God should be on board. Let your mind go down there a little bit. But for the sake of time, let's keep going. So Martha says, don't you care? And Martha hasn't even bothered to ask Jesus about his agenda. She assumes that her own culturally defined agenda is the right one, and then she attempts to enlist Jesus' support. Well, in a response marked by remarkable restraint, Jesus chooses to neither escalate the situation nor put Martha in her place. Instead, he just leads with Martha, Martha. And that takes us back into the text. Pick up with verse 41. But the Lord answers her, Martha, Martha. You're anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. With genuous, genuine kindness, Jesus says, I get it. I get it. You're troubled. You're anxious about many things. And then Jesus gives Martha this invitation, and it's the same invitation he extends to you and I. He says one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, 
and it will not be taken away from her. Now, there's deliberate wordplay going on here. There's so much wordplay in the scriptures. One of Martha's concerns is probably food. How are we going to feed all these people? Martha wants Mary to help her in the kitchen. Well, Jesus flips it, and he says, Mary's chosen the good portion. That's loaded language. If you look in the scriptures, let's just look at one book, book of Psalms. Look at how this word portion is talked about with more than food. You want the good portion. The good portion is more than food. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you're my refuge. You're my portion in the land of the living. Mary's chosen the good portion. And Jesus is not about to send her in the kitchen to do a dozen things that don't matter right now. And I, in my notes, I put that in all caps, right now. I put it in all caps because there's another incident. It happens in Bethany. We're going to refer to it later. Martha's there. Martha is serving. She's serving, and it's good. It's good. It's all good. She's serving, and it's all good. The issue is not about serving. It's about choosing the good portion. In almost every situation, there's a good portion available to us. There is something we can learn. There is someone we can help. There is an opportunity for peace in the midst of a storm. And we've got a God, a creator, who wants to help us learn how to identify that. Right now, what's my good portion? When everything seems to be spinning out of control, what's my good portion? With all these opportunities before me, what's my good portion? What would you have me to choose? And, and we see this even more clearly now as we zoom out from this incident. So now let's move beyond just the surface reading of this text. Let's look at it how, where Luke puts it in his narrative. This was really interesting. And again, this is where my week got a lot more complex. In context, the point of this text right here that we just looked at, it's not, hey, everybody, let's just all stop doing and do more being. It's not, hey, everybody, let's be more contemplative. It's not, hey, everybody, slow down. That's not the point of this text. It's not. At the opening of the book of Luke, and that's where this is found, Luke promised to give a, quote, orderly account. And then we see that Luke put this account out of order. Let me show you what I mean. Um, if you have your Bibles, flip back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Let's take a look at that. We can also put it up on the screens here. All right. This is a turning point in the book of Luke. Luke orders things a very particular way. And in Luke 9, 51, we see a turning point. It says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken out, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Where is Jesus focusing now? To Jerusalem. And, and what happens now in Luke's account, you have this movement. You have everything now between now and chapter 19. Everything in Luke now is, is put within the context of a journey towards Jerusalem. Jesus, he's got his focus. It is, I'm going to go die for the sins of the world and be raised again by the Father. So he's got all of his focus, all of his energy. He's going to Jerusalem, and everything else is set within that journey. I'll show you an example. If you were to continue to read, you come across things like this, Luke 13, 22. As Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward, towards Jerusalem, these things are happening. So you see there's this movement towards Jerusalem. Jesus is focused. He knows his time is short, and he is determined to make the most of the time he has. Scholar N.T. Wright, love N.T. Wright, describes Jesus' journey like this. 
He says, as Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, and it literally is uphill, he leaves behind him many towns and villages and households and individuals who have glimpsed a new vision of the kingdom and for whom life would never be the same again. Jesus didn't just have the simplified life. He was able to give something to other people, and everywhere he went, he left this wake that we're still studying today. So he's going on this journey. People are being transformed, and that's the context of this passage that we look at. And we see that this journey in, in, in Luke doesn't end until he gets right to the gateway to Jerusalem, at least coming from that side, and that is a city called Jericho. Here we see Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through. So at this point in the journey, Jesus has now completed the journey from an area called Galilee, this region up north, all the way to Jericho. And from the, some of the other accounts of Jesus' life, we know that now from Jericho, Jesus makes his way through a narrow, dangerous pass up to Jerusalem, and he stops at Bethany along the way. And if we use the other collaborating accounts of Jesus' life, we see that Jesus, during Holy Week, he goes back and forth from Jerusalem to Bethany. So all that to say, Luke 10 is out of order. Luke 10 is out of order. Let me show you, um, in addition to director of shelf making, um, which was one of my old titles, my new title is director of map making here at the church. And so here is this amazing map, perfectly to scale. I probably don't even need to tell you what this map is about because you can just see it, right? Self-explanatory. It's so obvious. You've got the Mediterranean Sea right here. You've got this region that is um, where Jesus lived and ministered right here. You have a northern region called Galilee. You have this area called Samaria, and you have this area called Judea. And the movement is like this in Luke. You've got Luke up here in the, in, putting Jesus in the Galilee area. He's coming through the Samaritan region, and then he ends up here at Jericho. And then to get to Jericho, you go through a narrow pass that exits basically at Bethany. And then it's just a stone's throw from Bethany to Jerusalem. Well, so here you got the movement, but Luke 10 is here. He ends up, Luke 19, he's supposed to be Jericho. Luke 10 is out of order. What is Luke doing? Well, before we ask the question, what is Luke doing, doesn't this call into question Luke's accuracy? A lot of people have said that. They're like, this is proof that the Bible can't be trusted because Luke can't get his facts straight. Be careful about saying that because you're really flipping the cards of your own ignorance when you say stuff like that. Um, the, the genre that we're talking about here is narrative. It's, it's a narrative. In narrative, what you can do, as long as you don't mess with the facts, you can group things thematically. It's not all that different than, um, than a, a documentary. I recently watched a documentary about Muhammad Ali. And what they did, instead of starting at his birth and working to the end of his life, they grouped it by people that were part of his life. So you heard account from the perspective of one of his trainers. You heard an account from his family members. You heard an account from people that he fought. And so you've got, it looks like it's out of order, but it's just because you're grouping it thematically. Luke does that. So that's what he's doing. What is he trying to tell us? Why did he put this account where he put it? Well, one of the ways to look is what came right before it. What comes right before it. So if you have your Bibles, look at what comes right before this account with Mary and Martha. And we can just skip over Luke 10, 38, the, the rehash. We'll just keep moving here. Right before it comes the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's what comes right before this account. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan, is this a parable all about, hey, what you need to do is do less and listen more? Is that what the point of the Good Samaritan is? Is the parable of the Good Samaritan just, you know, 
sit back and be more contemplative. No, if you're not familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan, here's what happens. There's a man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. The same area that we're talking about here, right? Except he's going in reverse order that Jesus was going in. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, which means he would have passed through Bethany. All right? So this man is traveling um, from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a dangerous path, and he's jumped by robbers, and he's beaten, and he's left for dead. And a priest goes by, and a Levite goes by, and they may have been contemplative, but they didn't do anything to help the guy. All right? He receives help. This beaten man receives help from an unexpected source a Samaritan who was despised by the Jews. And this Samaritan, what he does is he, makes, he does an action. He puts his entire life on hold. He cares for this guy. He brings this guy to an inn, which could have been in Bethany. He sits at his bedside for the whole night. And then this is interesting. I never caught this detail before. He says to the innkeeper, hey, innkeeper guy, here's some money. I got to go take care of some other stuff right now. But this is really important. I'll be back, and when I come back from the other stuff that's also important, when I come back, we'll settle up. So that's what comes right before this. And the verse that comes, Luke 10, 37, that comes right before 10, 38, that verse says this. It says, go and be contemplative. Is that what it says? No, it says what? Go and do likewise. And so we go from that, and now Martha is doing She's serving, that is good, that is God honoring, and Jesus points out Mary, who's doing a very unlikely thing. And let's look at why this is unlikely. What Mary is doing by sitting at the feet of Jesus is not just relaxing. She's taking the posture of a disciple. We commented on this before in, in this service. Um, here's N.T. Wright again. He puts it this way. In that culture... As in many parts of the world to this day, houses were divided into male space and female space. And male and female roles were strictly demarcated as well. Mary had crossed an invisible but very important boundary within the house and another equally important boundary within the social world. To sit at the feet of a teacher was a decidedly male role. Role Beyond that, to sit at someone's feet meant quite simply, you're their student. You're their disciple. And you might want to write in your, your margin somewhere, Luke 8, 35. You can write that down, Luke 8, 35. Write down Acts 22, 3. Acts was also written by Luke. He uses that phrase, at the feet, both of those places. So it's the same author, same phrase, and he's describing the place of a disciple. An unexpected person, a woman, is in an unexpected place, a place of discipleship. And that's why this series is more about, hey, let's just slow down. Let's just reorganize our closets. Here's the question of the series. I encourage you to write this in your notes. Will you take the posture of a disciple? Will you take the posture of a disciple? Martha gets ripped in almost every sermon I hear. Maybe I'm just listening to the wrong people or something. But she usually gets ripped because they're saying she's more worldly. She's not as spiritual as Mary. She should be more spiritually in tune with, like Mary. It is not that simple at all. Jesus, the scriptures say Jesus loves Martha. Go look up Martha everywhere else she appears in the scriptures. Look her up. The Bible says Jesus loved her. Martha has one of the clearest articulations of Jesus' purpose, who he was in the entire gospel, any of the four gospels. 
In fact, I quote a conversation between Jesus and Martha at every funeral I officiate. She got it. And as I mentioned earlier, John chapter 12, take a look. This is right before Jesus' death. Martha is serving, and it's good. The issue is not contemplative versus action. It's about discipleship. Serving is as Christ-like as you can get. But Martha was missing a moment because she was taking her cues from her culture and probably her own internal compass. It seems like serving comes naturally to Martha. But in, she's doing that. She's looking to other sources instead of looking to Jesus, taking her cues from the one who cares and saying, what would you have me to do in this moment? What does it mean to follow here is what I would love to accomplish in the next five weeks, as much as for me as anybody in this room. Here's what I'd love to see happen. Um, from time to time, you'll hear us talk about some continuums in our church. One of the continuums is this one. It's, it's a, a, a cross-section of discipleship. We would love, we would be honored if God would use us to help people who aren't interested in Christianity to move towards curious. And one of the ways they're going to become curious is if they see something different in us. If we are as burned out and overstressed, and all that stuff is everybody else, why would they want to, you know, drink our Kool-Aid, right? So, so that's part of it. But here's what I'm hoping. We're going to focus a lot over the next five weeks on this idea of trusting. We move from curious to trusting. And by trusting, now this is, trusting is mean you're, you're trusting. You're going to actually say, okay, Jesus, you did this, I'm going to do this. You said to do this, I'm going to do this. That's what trust is. And so we're going to look at some just key areas of our life. Are you going to trust God with your priorities? That's part of discipleship. I'm going to become like the master. Are you going to set priorities the way Jesus set priorities? We're going to talk about personal finance. Are you willing to trust him the way he looked at money and possessions? We're going to look at relationships. How did Jesus do relationships? What can we learn from that? And are we willing to trust him? You know, some of these key areas in our lives work. What did, what did work look like in the life of Jesus? And what can we learn from that? And what we want to do then is not stop here because where we want to end up is where Jesus was. I use the word abiding here, but you could use the word spirit-led. You could use the word walking with God. It's the idea of Jesus understood in any given moment, what does it mean to love God and love others? What's the one thing right now? of all the things I could be doing. Look at his life. There are times where Jesus intentionally chose rest. He intentionally chose to get away. But I get so frustrated when I hear people talking about that without also pointing out every one of those, if not everyone, almost every one of those. Look what happens next. Jesus is interrupted and then he responds. Do we always respond every time we're interrupted? No. But there, there, for everything, there's a season, and Jesus knew what the season were. He knew when do you pull away and rest? When do you re-engage? Jesus, when it comes to praying, there were times Jesus prayed so boldly. He, he, he prayed demons out of people. He, 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 he prayed for people to be risen from the dead. He prayed for a storm to be calm. What else did he do? He prayed, God, let your will be done. What else did he do? He recognized in another situation there wasn't enough faith in that area. He didn't pray for these folks because there wasn't enough faith. He could identify even how do you pray in a given situation. Anybody else want more of that? I want more of that. I want to know when do I pray boldly? When do I say, God, this is your will? I want to know that. There were times where Jesus intentionally knew 
I'm going to avoid harm. There are times where Jesus put himself out of harm's way. In our world that's getting as dangerous as it is, we need to know that. When do I not go into a danger zone? But what else did Jesus do? He set his face towards Jerusalem. He also knew there's a time, the right thing to do, the good portion is to lay down my life. Wouldn't you love that, to know that difference? When do I stay out of trouble? When do I walk boldly towards it? Jesus knew that. I want more of that. Can you imagine more of life like that? I can, and I want more of it. To be guided with increasing clarity by what does it mean in any given moment to love God and others? When do you sit by that bedside for an extended period of time? And when do you say, you know what? I have some other important things I need to attend to right now. And I need to hit pause, and I need to let someone else care for this person. And I need to go attend to some other things. Wouldn't it be great to have peace about that and not to feel life is so complicated? What do I do? I want to help, but I also have to attend to this. Wouldn't it be great if the spirit of Christ was so at work in our lives we had the mind of Christ? The Bible says we do have the mind of Christ, right? So let's walk in that. Let's walk in that. When, to, to know when do we just let the dishes go, right? But then when do we do lavish hospitality? are important, to know the difference, to have the mind of Christ. And so let's walk that direction. Let's start with the basics. Let's start with the baby steps of trusting. Let's go back in these key areas, priorities, finance, relationships, work, and our calendars. And let's say, God, let's start here. Let's get with the basics first. Are we trusting you in these areas? And now as we trust you, will you give us the mind and spirit of Christ? So that's my challenge for us in this series to start this series, would we just say, God, I'm going to trust you. Make me willing to be willing to put my trust in you because you can't do everything. You know what? This group needs to repeat that after me because <laughs> I know a lot of you say, I can't do. All right, you got You even skipped ahead. There you go. You knew exactly where I was going. I love that. I can't do everything. We can't do everything. We can't do everything that's demanded of us at work and home. We can't do everything attend to every relationship that we wish we could. We can't help with every good cause. We can't engage in every good thing that the world offers. So let's commit right now to saying, God, will you help us on that path towards the one thing? All right, let's pray. Let's do that right now. Would you please stand with me? Let's pray this. God, we are going to ask this good thing of you. You said where two or three are gathered, you're with us. You say if we pray anything according to your will, it will be done. So we are standing on those promises, and we're asking, and we're gathered in your name, and we're asking that you would help us to trust you. Help us to start following you. Help us to leave behind, and we thank you that you made it possible for us to leave behind everything else. All of the sin, all the junk, all the clutter. We pray, Lord, that you'll show us what is clutter, and you'll show us what is essential. Lord, we also pray the scary prayer that you'll burn away the dross, whatever it takes. If it takes an illness, if it takes a loss of a job, whatever it takes to sever us from things that are dross in our life and purify us like pure gold, we ask you right now to do it. If it means a threat to our church or our lives, we don't seek that, but if it means that, then do it. Whatever it takes to purify our hearts before you, to become your followers, your disciples, would you do it? In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I just got scared on that one. Oh, that's where we're going, you guys. God bless you. We see a couple weeks. There are people that would love to pray with you. If any of this stuff rung a bell and you'd like to pray with someone about it, there's people that were there to pray with you. God bless you.
We love you.